Radio Ed War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And that book was written in 1897. And that book in 1897 was groundbreaking for a number of reasons. The first of which is that this book was intended to be an indictment on British imperialism. And Wells wrote this book as a parody uh, about the all-conquering British being easily conquered and the proud army being brought to its knees. And second, this book revolutionized science fiction. The book played upon this common theme that there was something out there, something beyond us, that, that perhaps we are not the center of the universe. And it asked the question, what would happen if whatever it is that's out there beyond us ever declared war upon us? In the book, the aliens come in, and they are far more powerful than the humans. They are far more technologically advanced, and nearly wipe out humanity. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I don't know if you were planning on reading this book. You've had uh, 150 years to do it. So, ironically, they, are en- they end up being wiped out. The aliens are wiped out by bacteria and disease. Our immune systems have made us immune to these particular bacteria and diseases. But to our great fortune, the aliens had no such immunity. And so, humanity ends up surviving the attack and learns from its mistakes as the aliens die of the common cold. It's a wonderful work of fiction. Now let's take that and contrast that night with its dramatic national performance heard by millions, highlighting the landing of extraterrestrials that never actually happened, with another night. A night in which something from out of this world came into this world, and no one knew about it except for some shepherds in a field and some wise men on the other side of the continent. One night shook a nation, the other went unnoticed. On the surface, these two nights could not seem more unalike, but I'd like to show you tonight that these two nights had more in common than you might think. Here's the truth about the nativity. There is something out there, something beyond us, and we are not at the center of the universe. But the thing out there that is beyond us has not come to declare war on us. In fact, he has come because we have declared war on him. And when he came, though he was so much more powerful than us, he allowed himself to be killed by the disease that we believed ourselves to be immune to, sin. But in his death and his resurrection, we don't just simply learn from our mistakes. We are brought to life and we are set free. So there's two things I want to show you from the scriptures today. Building upon this truth that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Those two things are this. We are at war and Jesus came to bring peace. So if you're taking notes, let's jump right in to point number one. We're going to get to the scripture in just a moment. 
Point number one is this. The word became flesh because the world is at war. So, um, not to stand up here and be grinchy, uh, as I typically do, but one of the things that I gripe about at Christmas time a lot is the songs. Um, in, addition, in addition to the songs being smarmy and over-the-top and annoying and saccharine, um, many of them are just straight-up inaccurate. And one of the things that I can never, ever get behind is inaccurate songs. That's true of the entire year, which is why I can never listen to Christian radio, ever. I can't do it. Uh, because there are way too many times that I might log on and hear something within the first 10 seconds and be like, yeah, that's not true. Ah, that's, that's garbage. And so I shut it off and go back to iTunes radio that I purposely curate particular content. Um, this time of the year, uh, we sing a lot of inaccurate songs. Okay? One of them is Silent Night. Silent Night could not be more inaccurate. The problem with that song is that the night of Jesus' birth was not silent at all, okay? This was a night that was full of crisis. It was full of broken relationships and unmet expectations. It was full of physical and emotional pain. Oh, and by the way, there was also childbirth, okay? And for any of you that have ever been in the delivery room during childbirth, you know it is not silent, okay? There is a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, a lot of directions being shouted, a lot of hand squeezing and, and agony all around, okay? It's a beautiful night, it's a beautiful experience, but it is anything but silent, okay? So in addition to that, the whole away in a manger bit about no crying he makes— that is baloney, okay? This was a real human baby, all right? Plenty of crying he made, all right? Like every baby, Jesus was a red-faced, bloody, alien-looking creature crying his eyes out, okay? There is no such thing as a beautiful childbirth. I do not care what Hallmark tells you. Childbirth is not beautiful, and neither are babies, all right? A newborn baby does not come out cute. I say that about my own children. When they came out, they looked like alien creatures. They became very cute shortly thereafter. But that's just how it happens, okay? They come out like War of the Worlds. But this night, <laughs> look at her face. She's like, how dare you? <laughs> but you're the, you're the prettiest girl in the world now, babe. <laughs> but listen, that night wasn't spiritually silent either, okay? This night was an incredible maneuver in a time of war. So, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to start uh, with verse 6. The, the entire text that we'll be looking at in Isaiah 9 is verses 1 through 7. Uh, but let's start with the verse that we all know, okay? Isaiah 9. Verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at chapter, I'm sorry, we're going to look at verse 6 first. If you don't have a Bible, the words are behind me on the screen. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a quintessential Christmas verse, 
It's one of our favorites. It is quoted all over the place. It is lovely. It is filled with beauty and filled with truth. And this is the verse that you will find printed on almost every Christmas card. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's beautiful. Great verse. Awesome, awesome verse. But let's do what we so rarely do in our American church culture, and that is read that verse in context. Okay? So let's zoom out a bit to the surrounding verses and read in context that verse in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, just in case we missed it, okay, I'm going to rewind and read verse 5 one more time, okay? Verse 5, for the, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Try putting that one on your Christmas card this month, okay? Allison and I have not sent out our Christmas cards. We still have to design them. I am going to lobby for Isaiah 9-5 instead of Isaiah 9-6 to go on the Christmas card just to see what people do, okay? They're going to receive our Christmas card, and they'll be like, what is this? What violent war call did they put on their Christmas card? And then... On the back, I wanted to say, okay, now you can keep reading to verse 6, right? This is not a Christmas card verse, but it sets the stage for the Christmas card verse. This Christmas card verse cannot be what it is. Verse 6 cannot be what it's intended to be without verse 5 and the other verses that surround it. So, a little bit of background in Isaiah 9. What's, what's going on here? At this time in the history of Israel, Israel is facing the prospect of an invasion from the nation of Syria. It, it, it's been uh, foretold that, that Syria is going to invade. And so the king, King Ahaz of Israel, is afraid. And God tells him 
Do not fear. Trust me. Look to me. Trust me. Syria may be threatening. Trust me. But instead, King Ahaz hires the kingdom of Assyria to come and help. Spoiler alert, Assyria does not come and help, okay? Assyria then turns on him, and they conquer Israel for themselves first. And so what we find here in Isaiah 9 is a promise from God that things will not always be the way that they are now. This is a promise that God is going to provide a Savior, someone that will rescue them from the pickle that they have put themselves in. Now, this has an immediate context and an immediate fulfillment, referring to the state of Israel during this Assyrian takeover. And this passage has a double fulfillment, referring to the spiritual fulfillment of freedom. And it's that second fulfillment, the spiritual fulfillment, that concerns us. Here, we are talking about a literal war. A war between nations. A war in which God provides his people a way out. A war in which God gives them hope. A war in which God sends someone to rescue. But this real physical war is symbolic of the real spiritual war that every day we are in the middle of. Places like Ephesians 6 are very clear about the fact that we are in a spiritual war, where it tells us it is not against flesh and blood that we wrestle, but against the powers of darkness, the principalities that wage war against our souls. In the Gospels, we find Jesus interacting with the enemy directly, with Satan, and with his minions on numerous occasions. That so many of the ailments that were being healed at the time were demonic. The powers of darkness are ever-present and always at work against us. So there's a spiritual war that's going on. In addition, there is also the fact that there is a sinful nature that we are born with which wars against our souls. Places like Romans chapter 7 make it clear where, where Paul describes this battle between the old flesh and the spirit. Where he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And, and the things that I don't want to do, I, I keep doing. And he says, I find this law within me that, that the old flesh desires sin, but the new man desires to walk with God. And so it is no longer I, but the flesh who lives within me. It wages war against our souls. And then add this other element that we, in our sin, have declared war against God. We have placed ourselves in enmity against the Almighty. You might say, how? Well, imagine walking into a king's chambers in a monarchy. Okay? Uh, monarchies are not common. Nowadays, but uh, that used to be the go-to form of government, right? Almost every nation was ruled by a monarchy. Now imagine you are in a nation that is a monarchy, uh, ruled by a king. And imagine that you gain audience with the king. And you walk into the king's chambers and you say to him, You are no longer in charge of me and my life. You cannot tell me what to do. I am my own master, 
and I do not have to submit to you. You know what that would be? That would be an act of war. That would be an act of treason. And in response, the king would crush you, right? If you had the gall to walk into the king's court and say, um, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm my own person. The king would then look at his guards and say, uh, seize him, and then would cut your head off in the public square, all right? You would be declaring an act of war if you walked into his chambers to do that. But this is exactly what we do with our sin. We walk into the chamber of the Almighty and we tell God in various ways, you are not in charge. I am. I don't have to listen to you. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. We look at his commands and, and we take our own way. He, he tells us how to manage our money and we say, yeah, you know, that all sounds good, but I got to do what I got to do. So uh, rather than doing what you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. He tells us how exactly to follow after him. And we respond by saying, okay, that sounds good and all, but that doesn't really fit my schedule. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you whenever it's convenient for me. He tells us how we're, we're supposed to handle our relationships. And we tell him, yeah, but that was thousands of years ago. And the people that you told me that through didn't really know what's going on today. And so, you know, I'm just going to go with conventional wisdom uh, and, and I'm just going to have you bless what I choose and what I do. Or he'll tell us to do something simple like, don't worry, like what he told uh, King Ahaz. And we respond by essentially saying, here's the thing, I don't trust you to take care of everything. Um, it's up to me to determine what happens in my life. So I'm anxious about it, all right? In every one of these ways and a million more, our sin declares war on God. James chapter 4, verse 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we choose our sin, when we choose friendship with the world, so to speak, we are choosing to declare war. We are choosing to make ourselves enemies. We are choosing to commit an act of treason. We are walking into the king's chambers and we are saying, you are not in charge, I am. And so the thing is, in response to that, the king has every right to crush us. God has every right to enact judgment. God has every right to lay down the hammer. We are declaring war on the almighty God, and he would be totally justified in destroying us. Imagine, imagine for a moment that you are the God of the universe, okay? Some of us live like we already are, but imagine that you're the God of the universe. You are all-powerful, all-wise, all-everything. And this little ant of a person comes into your chambers and starts talking like they know what's up. What would your response be? Your response would probably be something similar to what God said to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? 
Oh, oh you want to go? Oh, oh you want to go? Oh, okay, let's go. Dress yourself like a man. I got some questions for you, Job. And he peppers him over and over and over for chapter after chapter after chapter. And Job keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller until in complete repentance and humility, in sackcloth and ashes, he's like, surely I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. I had no idea what I was doing, trying to walk in like I owned the place. God has every right to crush us. And so, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That should have been the moment that was the beginning of the smackdown. We have declared war on the king and now the king is showing up. He's here now. That sounds like bad news, okay? After our declaration of war on the king, the king sends his son to be among us. That's not good news, right? Look at verse 5 one more time. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Big uh-oh, right? Things are about to turn and turn for the worse. The incarnation is a wartime invasion. The God of the universe behind enemy lines. So humanity should be bracing themselves for impact. Right? Wincing. Waiting for God to lay down the hammer. But he doesn't. In fact, he does the opposite. Much to our surprise, the word does not become flesh in order to destroy us. The word becomes flesh, enters our brokenness, becomes one of us to save us. Now we can look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Unto us. Unto us. Given to us. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given as a gift. Jesus' birth was not God's way of attacking us, even though we should have deserved that. Jesus' birth was God's way of attacking the enemies that wage war against our souls. Jesus was entering into the war as a human being, not to fight against us, but to fight for us. Against Satan, against sin, against death. Jesus was not invading in order to be our adversary. Jesus was invading in order to be our champion. This 
was a war of the worlds. And Jesus comes to be the champion of glory on our behalf. Point number two. The word became flesh in order to turn the tide and bring peace. The word became flesh in order to turn the tide and bring peace. So let's remind ourselves for just a moment here the context of Isaiah 9. Israel has been conquered yet again. And this was a pattern, one that would repeat itself consistently over and over and over throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. The people would be close to God, but then they would complain about some lack that they thought they had, or, or some way that they believed that God was holding out on them, or, or some way that they believed that the other nations around them had it better than what they did. And so they'd look around at those surrounding nations and, and see things that they were jealous of, and they'd compare their lifestyles to the, the lifestyles of those people in the world around them, and they'd say, why can't we have what they have? Why can't we do the things that they do? Why can't we worship the ways that they worship? And so, little by little, the people would begin to allow themselves to compromise. And before long, soon, they would be worshiping the idols of the other surrounding nations. And God would warn them. And he'd speak to them, and he'd give them opportunity to repent. Oftentimes, through a prophet, he would send word to the people, Turn, I'm giving you a choice here. But then the people would rebel. And so God would allow them to have what they wanted. You, you want a life without me? Okay, that, that's your decision. You, you do realize that I'm the one who is protecting you from the other surrounding nations, right? You are a small peon of a nation. They can take you. I'm protecting you. But you want me to back off? Is that, is that, is that really what you want? Oh, okay, that's what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. And so God would allow the other nations to conquer Israel. It's what they asked for. You push me away, you're essentially putting down your shield and inviting attack. But if that's what you want, I'm not going to force you to change your mind. And so the cycle would continue. The people would be conquered. And then they'd realize their sin. And then they'd cry out to God. And God would forgive them. And God would rescue them. And then the people would worship God for a while, and then they'd compromise, and the cycle would keep going on and on and on and on and on. Over and over, this cycle went. And if you are saying to yourself, that sounds insane. How could they be so stupid? How could they look at all that God was doing in mighty miracles, by the way, right? Think about when, when God brought them out of Egypt in these incredible physical signs of wonder and then chapters in, they're like worshiping a golden calf and you're like, how could you be so idiotic, right? But then that's when we need to think very seriously and honestly about our own lives, right? Uh, because if I'm being honest with you, and if you're being honest with yourselves, I can tell you for sure, as I look back over my life, I see the very same cycle. I see the very same consistent pattern of worshiping God, and then looking out at the world and seeing something that I feel like I'm lacking, 
and falling into sin and then asking God for his forgiveness and, and, and going back to worshiping him and then falling into sin on and on and on and on, okay? This story of Israel is a story of us too. The same is true of all of us. So here in Isaiah 9, Syria is planning to invade. They're coming. And God tells the king, don't be afraid. Trust me. Rely on me. Put your hope in me. And instead, King Ahaz decided that it was much easier to put his trust in man rather than God. And so he calls Assyria for help. He rejects God's command, which is an act of treason. And how did God respond? By saying that he would come to defeat the enemy that was welcomed by his sin. Let's look one more time at verses 1 through 5. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, now when we read that verse in its context, verse 5 shows a beautiful promise. The, the beautiful promise is that God is saying there in no uncertain terms, I am going to destroy your enemies. I am going to end this war. I am going to put this behind you. Every invader will be left for dead so that his boots and his garments get burned for fuel. That's the promise here. God looking at Israel saying, I'm coming to wage war for you. Now again, this passage has what's called double fulfillment. And and this is true of many places in the Old Testament. There are prophecies made about the future Messiah that would also be fulfilled immediately in that time in a smaller way. So, If we were to keep reading in Isaiah, in chapter 10, God declares judgment on Assyria, on the king of Assyria, the arrogant king. God looks at Assyria and he goes, oh, oh, y'all thought, no, uh uh-uh, no, y'all were just a pawn. I'm now judging you as well. So that's the immediate fulfillment. But the ultimate fulfillment of, of Isaiah chapter 9 is in Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment is that Jesus was going to be the one who comes to trample our spiritual enemies and set us free. Jesus is going to come, and Jesus is going to wage war, and Jesus is going to be our champion. Jesus is going to be the one who brings that glory. But then he goes and he does it in the most unexpected way. When, when the aliens invaded in War of the Worlds, 
they made a big scene, even in a day when there was no live television or internet. Okay? The aliens came and they made a scene. They're crash landing in ships. They're emerging in terrifying magnificence. They're, they're mounting these walking war machines and they're firing these heat rays and they are raising cities, laying them to waste. And that's exactly how the Jews believed that the Messiah would come. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come in that way. When they read Isaiah chapter 9, they're waiting for the Messiah to come on a war machine and lay their enemies to waste. The Messiah is going to come and it's going to be war of the worlds. He's going to destroy the enemies. It's going to be on. But instead, but to us, A child is born. To us, a son is given. Now I want us to look for a moment here at at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now let's take that thought, and then let's line it up with the context of the verse that we've been memorizing in John chapter 1. So keep your, your thumb here in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, and then turn to John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jesus is a totally unexpected, bright, shining light. A light that the darkness could not overcome, but a light that most people could not understand, and even fewer were willing to accept. They only wanted a warrior king. They didn't want a Messiah who was as tender as a newborn baby. But verse 12 clearly says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, be- he gave the right to become children of God. To all who would receive him, he would change their identity. He would make peace between them and God. He would turn the tide of the war in their favor. He would not be their adversary. He would be their champion. We do not celebrate Christmas 
simply because it's Jesus' birthday. We celebrate it because it demonstrated the depth of God's love that he would become one of us in order to save us. And and maybe one of the reasons why Christmas annoys me is because it's so cutesy, right? It's so hallmarky. We've turned the Emmanuel incarnation into a story on par with Santa. We have sanitized it and stripped it of its meaning and its depth, and we've just made it about Jesus' birthday, when really it was the beginning of our redemption, the beginning of a relationship with God, a God who identified with us. Oh yes, Christmas is full of joy, and I am overjoyed to celebrate it. Just not the same Christmas that most people celebrate, the Hallmark Christmas. I celebrate the war of the worlds. The incarnation was an act of war against darkness, but it was also an act of peace, an act of peace toward people who had formerly made him their enemy. Because to all who would receive him, he offers reconciliation. There's another phrase that gets thrown around at Christmas time that gets really misused, I think, as well. And that phrase is, peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And what we've done is we've taken that phrase, and what we've made it mean is that everybody is nice to each other, right? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men means that we lay down our arms and we get along, and we put aside our differences, and maybe just for December we stop fighting, and we say nice things about each other, and we wave instead of doing something else. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We're just going to stop fighting. And then, as soon as December 26th happens, well, Christmas is over, we're fighting again. Unpause! But that's, that's not what the phrase means. It doesn't mean that we're nice to each other. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men isn't even about us at all. What it is referring to is the relationship between God and man, and specifically God being at peace with mankind and God showing goodwill toward us instead of judgment. That is what the incarnation was. It was a tangible display of God making peace on earth. Peace on earth because God is making it. God making peace on earth by accomplishing what we could not accomplish, by defeating an enemy that we could not face. And the incarnation was a bold act of goodwill toward men and women who did not deserve it. Peace on earth Because God brought it. And goodwill toward men and women who don't deserve it. Because God was going to take upon himself the death that we did deserve in order to reconcile us to himself. The aliens in War of the Worlds, they they ultimately died because they caught human diseases. They didn't have the immunity to fight off earthly bacteria. Humanity did not have the power to defeat the aliens, but their sicknesses did. And because the aliens caught their diseases and died, the humans lived. Jesus, 
the God who created the universe, who, who by his words brought into existence all things, was immune to our deathly plague of sin as he sat on the throne of heaven. He was untouchable. But then the word became flesh. And in doing so, he knowingly and willingly opened himself up to the effects of our sin. And he took upon himself the death that it guaranteed. And because he died, the humans can live forever. All who receive him, all who believe in his name, all who are born again, not of flesh, but born of the will of God. So what better time than Christmas? What better time than Christmas to take the step of surrendering to him? To pledge yourself to a God who is as mighty as a warrior king and yet as tender as a baby. Who invades and yet condescends simultaneously. A God of ultimate cosmic power yet willingly put himself in an itty-bitty living space. And what better story to celebrate right now? What better story to focus on rather than meaningless, empty stories of elves and reindeer? All right, you can do both, all right? I'm not going to stop you from doing both, okay? But let's, let's not ne- neglect the former for the latter. This Christmas... Let us celebrate and submit to the God who became flesh, who invaded our darkness with light, who came to set us free from death in the ultimate war of the worlds. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for invading.